gives me great pleasure to introduce Christian May, the outgoing editor of City AM, to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, as he reflects on how the media has changed over the last five years as editor of the newspaper. City AM was founded 15 years ago as a London newspaper covering business and financial news in a tabloid style. It has been entrepreneurial since its outset. It has over 250,000 readers of its print edition each day until the pandemic meant it had to suspend the print edition and become an online-only product until it can return to print next year. We'll talk about the future of the media industry as despite the pandemic and the dramatic impact it's had on City AM, they are still recruiting for new roles and launching new digital products. We'll talk about where the future of journalism is heading and what skills you need to be a great journalist. City AM has a renowned reputation for fostering exceptional talent. The Sky News political reporter Kate McCann, the Daily Telegraph's Julian Harris and Oliver Shah, the Sunday Times business editor, all started their careers at the paper. I first met Christian over a decade ago at a student conference in Washington DC because that is what cool students did with their summers. Christian, welcome to today's episode. Could you start by telling us a story of how you arrived to be the editor of City AM and how City AM and that role have changed as a result of the pandemic? It'd be my pleasure, Jimmy, and I'll do my best to avoid it turning into a lecture because there's two quite big themes that you've asked me to touch on there. The first being how I became a newspaper editor, and it was an unconventional move for me. I had not before sitting in the editor's chair had I been a journalist. I'd not worked in a newsroom. I had worked for a number of years, including a number of years with you, in communications, um, political communications, business communications, policy communications, and I had done a master's in journalism, but I had mostly devoted myself to working around the media on behalf of other people, people's ideas, campaigns, issues, etc. And so I was working at the Institute of Directors when the owners of the City AM newspaper got in touch with me. They wanted to have a conversation. Now, I'd found out from a friend that they were thinking of hiring a political editor for the newspaper. And I thought, well, that's you know, that could be interesting, I suppose. So I went along to meet them and we had lunch and, and the lunch became dinner. And you know they hadn't actually talked about any specific job at all, including right towards the end of the meal we were having. So I said, well, maybe we should just keep in touch. And the two founders of the newspaper, Jens Torp and Lawson Muncaster, looked at each other and then looked at me. And one of them said, well, should we tell you the job that we want you to do? And I said, okay. Here we go. And they said, we want you to be the editor. And you really could have knocked me down. It was the most surreal proposition in my career to date, certainly. And you know, we had a couple of whiskeys and we talked about it. And it was quite clear that they had made this decision that this is who they wanted to run their media organisation. So I ended up thinking, well, you know, you know more about this newspaper than I do. So who am I to argue? If you think I should do this, then I'll say yes. And I genuinely thought the worst that could happen is that I might one day say to someone like you, did I ever tell you about that time I was the editor? of a newspaper for a few weeks before they realised their mistake, then I could live with that. And that was five years ago. So it was an extraordinarily steep learning curve. The rhythm of a print newspaper, that 24-hour cycle, means that you can go in, as I did on Sunday the 17th of August 2015, with no newspaper experience other than loving newspapers, reading newspapers, being around the media, and particularly political media, with no experience on the Sunday. And by the Thursday night, you've edited five newspapers, which is more than you've ever done before, and more than most people get to play with. So it was a very steep learning curve. I'm happy to reflect on any elements of that because there was so much to take on board from the mechanics of the production to you know even the personal connections in a newsroom full of established journalists who I was now 
to lead. But that was five years ago. A lot has happened. A lot has happened at the paper. A lot has happened in the world around us. It has been the most exhilarating and enjoyable period of my professional career. I'm afraid to say I include in that a period when you and I worked together. This has been even more enjoyable than that. And it has, of course, like so many businesses, been knocked for six by the pandemic. And we had to take the decision in April to suspend printing the newspaper because our readers had ceased to come into London. The entire distribution model was based around commuters flocking into London as they used to do in their millions and as one day they stopped doing. So we had to furlough a lot of staff. We had to hunker down. We didn't know how long we were going to be out of action for. We maintained the website, of course. We kept 10 or so journalists on to keep covering our sectors throughout this crisis. We launched a daily podcast. We're revamping our newsletters. So we've kept ourselves pretty busy. But the question that I can't answer at this stage is when are we going to come back to print? All I can say is that we will, but we need things to be in a better state than they are now. So it's been very, very, very challenging few months. And I know that a lot of people, probably everybody, working in business, particularly a small business like ours, 50 employees, turns over 10 million quid. You know, you really feel it. You know everybody intimately. You have to make very difficult decisions. And there's a lot of uncertainty that everybody has to live with. So it has been an extraordinary five years and an even more extraordinary five months. Yes, I think that's a a good summary of the last five years. Extraordinary, but nothing compared to what we've seen in the last five months. I mean, I think just touching on your personal story there at the beginning, and you talk about sort of editing a newspaper, and it must be such a baptism of fire on your first day. There's no sort of working out the lay of the land. You know, that day you've got to edit a newspaper and it's got to be on people's tubes the next day. How did you sort of, and you alluded to it there, overcome the sort of imposter syndrome? Because I think it's something that we all have a bit of at some points is that somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, how did you end up here doing this? How did you sort of overcome that in your first few months? <laughs> I'm not sure I did. I didn't suffer from imposter syndrome. I was an imposter. <laughs> there, was, there was no getting away from that. My appointment to the newspaper was written about in all the other national newspapers. And a lot of people were politely put it, say they were baffled. Some of them were incredulous. And that was fair enough. You know, if I was editing a newspaper somewhere else, and I saw the announcement that this guy who was 28, who'd only ever worked in PR and communications, was becoming the editor of a newspaper, it's fair to raise an eyebrow at that. I mean, I raised my own eyebrows at that. I just go back to the question of how I got the job because it's quite tempting not least because you feel like you're being sort of humble and self-effacing to just say in these conversations oh it's just a stroke of luck and of course you know I suppose it was there's always an element of that if you're going to be honest with yourself you also have to acknowledge that being in that position where that stroke of luck could strike you was the culmination of a lot of hard work a lot of activity even if you didn't consider it the path that you were on everything you'd done previously had led you to the point where suddenly you think oh that's a stroke of luck so I don't want to be too flippant or you know put forward any kind of modesty is good isn't it but you know false modesty in this case I don't want people listening to this to think that people get interesting jobs purely by a stroke of luck. Because as you would know, having worked in the heart of number 10, and as I now have a sense, run a newspaper for five years, that whatever it is that takes you to the room and puts you in the conversation where an opportunity is presented to you, it might feel out of the blue. But if you're being honest, it is the culmination of everything you've done previously, even if you weren't planning for it. So I did appreciate that. It took me some time. It didn't exactly try and talk the owners of the newspaper out of this decision, but it did get to the point where one of them said with a bit of exasperation in his voice. We know what we want. We've done this before. We've run this newspaper for 10 years. Basically, who are you to argue with 
our decision. So that was a bit of a confidence boost. They had spoken to everybody I'd ever worked with. They'd read everything I'd ever written. They'd seen me on news channels and paper reviews and doing punditry. They knew who they were talking to and this was their decision. So I got some confidence from that. But also I had a lot of help. Julian Harris, who you mentioned in the introduction, was a long-standing reporter at City AM. The first thing I did was promote him to deputy editor, kind of pull him close where he remained for nearly five years before he moved off to the Telegraph. And he was an absolute rock. I also received unsolicited advice from Ian Martin, an author, journalist, former editor of The Scotsman, columnist now at The Times, of course. He wrote me a letter. I didn't know him terribly well at the time, but he wrote me a letter while some people were busy tweeting saying, who the hell is this kid and why has he got this job? He wrote me a letter with eight pieces of advice, which it turns out was based loosely on a letter that was sent to him when he became editor of The Scotsman, also at quite a young age. It was incredibly generous, very thoughtful and very pragmatic. And I have often drawn on the pearls of wisdom, some of which were unique to newspapers and editing newspapers, some of which were slightly more broad and philosophical, but it was an incredibly thoughtful thing for him to have done. I've always remembered it, and I will always try to pass on that kind of advice, solicited or otherwise, because I think it's a good thing to do. So I was grateful for that. But in answer to your question, I had a lot of support, a lot of help, and a lot of people I spoke to in the run-up to starting the job. But ultimately, when you sit down at that desk, when you look at a flat plan that contains 28 blank pages, and it's your decision as to how to fill them and what to fill them with, whether a story should be 300 words or 500 words, whether it should go at the top left of page three or the bottom right of page seven. All of those decisions have to be made. Initially, I'm sure they were made in a pretty collaborative style with people who were aware that this was my first rodeo. But very quickly, actually, it kind of dawned on me that I could do this. The basic judgment and decision making and the creative part of putting a newspaper together and saying what you think is important, I could do, as it turns out. And everything else I thought I'll learn along the way, including how to use the production software and even some of the terminology that more seasoned newspaper hacks and designers would use in the newsroom. But I picked it up, I got there. I'm not the only person, not the first person to have found themselves slightly adrift. All you can do is knuckle down, learn fast and try not to cock it up. Absolutely. Good advice for anyone in, in any industry, I think. But on sort of journalism specifically, and you know, perhaps the, you can refer to Ian Martin's letter that you mentioned, what are the skills that you look for in a great journalist? I'd be intrigued as to how that has changed over the last five years as well, as journalism has become so much more dispersed in terms of you know, everyone being able to tweet and, and almost everyone having their own platform. You know, What skills, and we also discussed in the, in the introduction, there's inevitable turnover of staff at City AM. So you must be sort of recruiting all the time. What skills are you looking for in a great journalist? I think point eight of Ian Martin's letter to me was, this is going to be the most fun you'll ever have. And it has been. Point seven was, ruin the breakfasts of powerful people. And I can look back on my five years of the newspaper and know that we have done that to great effect on plenty of occasions. But that's not to say that he was advocating a kind of reckless vandalism. He was advocating a fearlessness and an objectivity which come from a sort of great curiosity and a determination to find out what's really going on and to tell other people about it. And that is at the heart of, of what makes a great journalist. And you don't have to have done a journalism degree. You don't have to have done a master's in journalism to have those qualities. In fact, often I found people don't even know they have those qualities. And I have hired dozens and dozens, probably 35, 45 journalists over my five years. If I have a reporter last 
maybe 18 months, that's a good innings because all the other newspapers fish in my pool for their next generation of talent. So a lot of the young reporters that come to me, this might be their first job, maybe their second job. And if they're good and they last, I know they will be poached and they will go off and work elsewhere. And people that I've hired are now working on the business desks and other desks at national newspapers across the country. That is nothing but a source of pride for me. I have never ever tried to stand in the way or to be anything other than philosophical and supportive when someone comes knocks on my door and says can I talk to you something about their tone of voice I know when they're going to say I've been offered a job at the Telegraph or I'm going off to Sky News and all I can do is say well done certainly if I think it is the right move for them on occasion I might have said I'm not sure that's the right move or the right time but generally speaking I support them but I've also hired from unusual sources I was an unusual appointment to the editor's chair myself as we discussed and I have turned other people into journalists an accountant an electrician people who have written to me and said I think I want to do this and I've taken a punt on them and they've all worked out very well people who have either specific skills that are useful to financial journalism the ability to read forensically a balance sheet or an annual statement and identify if something's not quite right that's a skill probably not one that you're taught if you're doing a journalism course somewhere now if it turns out they can't write very well well I can teach them that bit But if they've got something to bring to the table, bring to the organization, whether it's their attitude or a particular skill set, I feel like I can teach them the other things they need to know. And so I don't just look for Oxford grads who've got a master's in journalism, because frankly, I could fill the whole newsroom with them. Journalism does have an access problem. There is an expectation, particularly, you know, I have to be honest, a small news organization like mine got about 30 members of the editorial staff. I don't have the resources to kind of a constant stream of graduates and trainees and interns. You know, I have to find somebody who's ready to roll, even if they're a bit rough and ready, and I can teach them the other things they need to know. I do sometimes feel like I don't do enough or haven't done enough to go out of my way to hire from more diverse backgrounds or places that perhaps my industry doesn't always look for talent. I've done a few things, and you know, I've partnered with some charities, and as I say, I've taken a punt on a few wildcard candidates, but my industry in general, and I would confess myself, you know, I haven't done enough to try and break down the access problems because it's an expensive industry to get trained up in and it's an expensive industry to be in because it doesn't tend to pay new reporters terribly well. So I wish, if I look back on my five years, I wish I had done more to try and bring in journalists from different backgrounds. I think I've done a fair bit, but it's something that the industry needs to look at. And what skills do you think you're particularly looking for in terms of the future? Because journalism has changed so much as we've discussed in the last five years, but also the last five months and been recruiting still through the pandemic more of a digital offering and so on. I mean, it was the big trend we were told a couple of years ago that news was going to be done a lot more through video and so on. What skills are journalists going to need to equip themselves for to be successful in the first half of this decade, do you think? Well, I mean, I can see it in the young aspiring journalists or young journalists at the beginning of their career who apply to me. They pitch themselves as being very well-rounded, first in digital media, video production, home editing, podcasting, you name it. Whereas even back in 2015, I wasn't seeing applications like that. I was seeing people who were professing a passion for writing and interviewing. And those things are great, but certainly these days, and it's a product of the training that they go through, that they are able to tick all those boxes. But I suppose like any organization, when you're recruiting, you're not just recruiting an individual. You are recruiting someone who's going to fit into the wider operation and your whole operation has to be properly balanced. Now, there will be organizations, maybe even some newsrooms, where they know what they want and they want 20 of them. 
But I think a successful orchestra, if you like, I don't want to sound too pompous, is going to have elements that are more prominent, people who perhaps are in the back row, people who take more of a lead, people who have a different approach to the same issues. And so you're looking for a balance. And at any one time, you can sort of feel if your newsroom is functioning in the right way, if the dynamics are right, if you've got the right people on the right beat. And some people, you know, will have a bit more swagger to them and a bit more confidence. And somebody else might really not have any of that and might be really quite quiet and retiring. But I couldn't tell you between those two who innately would be the better journalist. You would hope that they would all share certain characteristics, a scepticism that is not yet a cynicism. You would hope that they understood their core responsibilities to their readers in terms of accuracy, reliability, credibility. I suppose above it all in my profession, a curiosity, an ability and a desire to look at what someone's told you or look at what someone's presented to you and not to take it at face value. And that's a scepticism, but not a cynicism. You don't want people who just think everybody's lying, everyone's a bastard, everybody's a crook. You want people who are aware that some people are like that and that have the ability to determine whether the person they're looking at is one of them. I think that's so interesting because particularly the strapline of City AM is business with personality as well. Whilst you want people to, as you say, be sceptical, not cynical, you also fundamentally are quite a positive newspaper, which is one of the reasons that I thoroughly enjoy reading it in the mornings, because actually it covers the positive things that are happening in our economy, as well as some of the corporate disasters as well. It does. And that's fundamental. We are a sort of optimistic news organisation, though not, I should stress, to the point where we're Panglossian or we turn a blind eye to anything. Some of our finest journalism, undoubtedly, has resulted in the end of other people's careers or even companies. We've sent share prices tanking on the basis of our journalism. But I suppose bubbling along beneath all of that, this comes from the editor, from the top. Every news organisation, whether they admit to it or not, has an editorial position, a philosophy. Our philosophy is a free market, socially and economically liberal, pro-business, pro-globalisation, pro-immigration, pro-competition, pro-innovation editorial proposition. Now that most obviously manifests itself in the leader columns and in my own columns and in guest contributors, but it will also influence the stories we choose to give prominence to, often stories that other news organisations wouldn't. So there's no doubt that tone of voice comes from the top and it's my tone of voice and I can't expect everybody who works for my news organisation to share my political and economic beliefs. And I know they don't. And there's nobody working at any other news organisation who can say that all of their reporters agree with the positions and the political positions that that news organisation takes. It doesn't work like that. So in a way, the reason I love business and financial journalism is because so much of it is based on the numbers and provided you dig down into them, they won't lie to you. And you can find out really what's going on in the numbers, in the finances of a company, especially if they contradict the claims that company is making. So that's the kind of hard news side of what we do. But above that, there is this philosophy and it's my philosophy. It also happens to be the founding philosophy of the newspaper. And I suppose that's why right back to the beginning the founders approached me and said you know we think you can do this job one of the key things that you talked about previously was how you'd done a master's in journalism and it would be great to hear a bit more about that and the more rounded skills that it gave you because as i touched on there is this feeling that you know everyone is their own individual broadcaster now they can do that on social media but actually when you're putting a print newspaper together You are bound by different legal side of things. And that is in terms of making powerful people uncomfortable at breakfast. There are different rules that you have to follow as a news organization than somebody 
a random person on Twitter. So how did that degree give you a bit more of a rounded understanding of the media and the tenants behind it? Well, undoubtedly, there are core abilities and skills that you would need to familiarise yourself with if you're going to go into journalism. And really, this should apply now, whether you're launching your own site, even your own podcast, Jimmy, or indeed going to work at somebody else's media organisation. Media law is taken very seriously. The questions over libel and defamation are taken very seriously. And in my beat in particular, when you're writing about billions of pounds, if not trillions of pounds of deals and financial movements, a decimal point in the wrong place can have disastrous consequences. Now, when I say in the past that our journalism has moved share prices, of course it has. I mean, all good business journalism will move share prices. If you're breaking a story about a potential deal or somebody moving to a company or somebody leaving a company, it's going to move share prices. But if you do that on the basis of a story that turns out to be wrong, you are in seriously hot water. Now, touch wood, we've never really come to that point. But in terms of media law and the legal processes, I mean, like all organisations of a certain size, we have a lawyer and once or twice a week we'll be running a particular story past him. And he's excellent because because nine and a half times out of 10, he has to decide of publish it, and unless there's a very serious legal issue. And that will often be in the face of an initial threat. There's something I've noticed in the last couple of years, even in this job, it wasn't quite on display even when I started, is the extent to which law firms have become a preemptive part of the PR operation. So whereas previously, if you made a howler in the newspaper or you got a story wrong, you could expect, and probably rightly, to hear from a lawyer afterwards. These days, all it takes is the initial inquiry, the first bit of probing about an issue or a story for someone to send you a very strongly worded, very expensively written letter saying, cannot write this story. And I've had dozens of those letters and not one of them has stood up to legal scrutiny. But if you're just starting out or if you're at a really small organisation or if you're writing your own site, that's probably going to be enough to scare you off. And, you know, that's quite sinister. And I'm able to get my lawyer to fire back at that. But it's something I've noticed more and more. And so... The other thing I have to be constantly aware of, and I have to make my reporters aware of, for example, is that if my reporters link their Twitter accounts to their CityAM email address, then anything they tweet is treated in the eyes of media law no different to as if it had been written under their name in my newspaper. That is to say, I am legally responsible for everything that is printed in CityAM or appears on CityAM.com. And if my staff's Twitter accounts are linked to their work email address, I am also legally held responsible for anything they might tweet. So that is a new element of an organisation's approach to media law that perhaps wasn't something we were all thinking about 10 years ago. But I can tell you, we think about it a lot now. That is incredibly interesting and yeah, must provide a whole new set of dynamics to manage in terms of good journalism. So yeah, moving into the last section, this is deliberately supposed to be a bit more lighthearted about your experiences. What's the most mundane job that you've ever had to do? Gosh, well, I mean, I have had a lot of different jobs, certainly before my kind of main professional life started. And that's because like a lot of people, I worked in my mum's business and my dad's business. And my dad is a farmer. My mum has a restaurant. So from the age of about 10, no, I probably shouldn't say that. Maybe from the age of about 13, I was working. I gravitated more to the restaurant than the farm, but I certainly did my fair share of work on the farm in the fields in the winter. I don't know, maybe this won't sound mundane to someone who hasn't done it, but if you're spending eight hours a day bent over in sideways rain in February picking flowers in a field on a cliff, it might sound mundane. Um, perhaps I didn't appreciate it at the time, that actually it's quite a unique environment to work in, but I loved working in my mum's restaurant. Was some of that mundane, I suppose so, when I was pretty young, just washing up all day? Yeah, pretty mundane. But beyond that, in my professional career, kind of post-university, I think I've been quite fortunate. I've never really found myself twiddling my thumbs at work. 
Yeah, I think eight hours pot washing a day would take its toll on anyone slightly. And so to a section that we have called ducking disasters, what disasters kind of occur in a newsroom that you thought, crikey, we've tried that, we won't do that again? Oh, God, it's a cocktail of disasters. It's only a question of how many of them get noticed or make it into print. You have to just consider the number of people, the number of man hours that go into producing any edition of a print newspaper, let alone the website, which is now pretty much 24-7. I mean, I've been responsible, as I said, I'm legally responsible for everything that goes into the newspaper. And I have certainly also been directly responsible for more than a few cock-ups. I remember, you know, I have in the past confused individuals in a picture caption or got the name of a company company wrong. And you can bet that you hear from those companies the next day. Of course, human error happens. I suppose a a slightly memorable one was when we were writing a profile of an analyst of the year, city analyst of the year. And an unfortunate typo had him splashed across page four as analyst of the year. And I think some of his colleagues gave him a hard time about that one. I can imagine, yes, framed in the office somewhere. We talk about careers advice a lot, but actually advice ends up being kind of rooted in your own experiences and biases to a degree as well. What's the best piece of careers counsel that you've received and that you try and pass on to young journalists? Well, I mentioned that letter from Ian Martin, and you know, I mentioned that I still reflect on it. Some of the advice in there was very specific to the relationship between an editor and the owner of the newspaper, for example, and some of it was more philosophical. So I still draw on quite a lot of the points he raised, one of which was not to assume when I became the editor of a newspaper that every invitation flooding in for events and parties and freebies was because everybody suddenly wants to spend time with Christian May. In fact, is of course because everybody has their own agenda and everybody wants something from you. That I have always remembered. And over the course of five years, I've developed a pretty good nose for invitations and requests to do things or be at things or join dinners or whatever it might be. But I suppose that piece of advice, specific as it was to me at the time, translates more broadly into a question of just remaining clear-headed and rooted in a sort of self-awareness, I suppose, of where you fit in everybody else's plans. If you can hang on to that, whatever level you're in and whatever company you're working in and whatever sector, I think just however high you climb even perhaps the higher you climb the more relevant this advice becomes not to let your feet float too far off the ground and just to remember at all times where you started and how any other invitation however glamorous it might seem is almost certainly coming with strings attached Absolutely. I think that's very good advice. It's something I've thought about a lot when I was at number 10 is that people weren't inviting Jimmy to this great party for my own wondrous right. It's something that's very much worth remembering. And to finish with, a favourite book that you've come across in the last year that you've taken inspiration from can be a business book or perhaps something else. Unlike you, because I know you devour business books and such, my office is absolutely overflowing with all these unsolicited business books and management books, everything of the future. And I rarely dip into them. But the book I mentioned to you is certainly not of that category. I came across a dusty old book called Sailing Around the World Alone by Joshua Slocum. And this gentleman built his own pretty humble boat around the 1880 or thereabouts. And he set off to sail around the world alone. The resulting book, in his own words, is just the most beautiful and elegant and restrained account of something which was, of course, 
monumentally challenging and unbelievably difficult. And it's the most beautiful piece of writing and it's intensely philosophical, even though it's written in almost a kind of restrained, even mundane style. It's something I would recommend to anybody because it helps, I think, gain a sense of perspective and just a genuine appreciation for the way in which somebody who has done something so extraordinary can talk about it and convey it in such a humble and yet engaging way. So I would recommend that book, Sailing Around the World Alone by Joshua Slocum. Brilliant. What a wonderful, optimistic note to finish on. Christian, thank you so much for joining this episode. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to talk to you. A great chat there with my old friend and colleague, Christian May, the outgoing editor of City AM. As the current occupant of Number 10 is a former journalist and editor of The Spectator magazine, I don't think he'd appreciate a briefing note on the skills required in journalism. However, there were a number of points that Christian made that were relevant for people thinking of becoming a journalist or taking any leadership role. Luck plays a part in every move and opportunity, but don't underestimate how everything you have done leads you to that point and that opportunity. Of course, luck and serendipity play a role, but they won't be the only factors. Christian was very honest about imposter syndrome. It is totally natural to have some doubts when starting any new job. I certainly had it when I started at number 10, and when I even started this podcast too, for that matter. Christian talks about a broad range of skills that are required in being an editor, but also what traits a journalist required. You don't need a degree in journalism, for example. And actually, the hard technical skills, such as writing, are teachable on the job. There were a number of other traits that successful journalists have, such as curiosity, judgment, fearlessness, scepticism, but not cynicism, that are even more based around character, attitude and mindset that we have touched on so many times before. Some of these inevitably come with experience and time of doing any particular role. It was also worth noting the changes that he had mentioned over the last five years in terms of younger journalists pitching themselves as more all-rounded journalists rather than just being a great writer, for example. That is something which Pip Jameson talks about in our second episode of the development of the T-shaped individual, or slashies as sometimes she referred to them as. Andy Sylvester, who is the new incoming editor of City AM, will undoubtedly be wanting to put his own stamp on the paper when it returns to print in 2021. But I know he'll value many of the skills and cultural aspects that Christian talked about. We have one more episode of this pilot series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. I'll be interviewing the youngest dragon on Canada's Dragon's Den, Michelle Romanow as she launches a new venture fund in the UK, focusing on democratising funding to startups and scale-ups, specifically focused in the e-commerce space. I am contemplating how and whether to do a second series, so that it has maximum impact for people looking for career inspiration. So I'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts on what has worked well on the podcast, what can be improved, and who we should be looking to interview. If you are transitioning careers, and have found this podcast helpful. I would also really love to hear from you in particular. I am also keen to speak to those who are just starting out on their careers, whether they are recent graduates, students, or apprentices. You can reach out to me on Twitter, directly at JimmyM. And as a reminder, you can also follow us and engage with us on Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy's Jobs. If you're listening on iTunes, please do give us a rating. That would be very much appreciated. Thanks to all of you who have left the review recently, particularly thanks to Joe, who called it the Joe Rogan of the business world. Thank you all very much for listening.